open again to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. Tonight we're going to keep carrying on in our series through the different attributes of Scripture. Uh, and just to remember again what where all we've been so far, we've thought about the basic concept of revelation, that God is there and He is not silent, that, uh, that God, uh, our Creator, has chosen to reveal Himself to us, and He's revealed Himself to us um, in more than one way. He has revealed Himself to us, generally speaking, in creation, in, in the fact that there is something rather than nothing, in the fact that there's um, the sun, moon, and the stars, and, and uh, human beings created in His image. That declares that there's a Creator, um, Romans 1 says uh, his divine attributes, his, his uh, eternal nature, his divine power have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So there's some things you can know about God just by what he's made. Um, but he's also revealed himself, we, we talked about that week, or Aaron Wine did, that he's revealed himself more particularly, specially, especially in the Word of God and in Jesus Christ. We talked about then another week. What was what? Did, what can we learn from Scripture? What Jesus' own view of Scripture is. Uh, if we're followers of Christ, then it would make sense that whatever Jesus' view of Scripture was, that should be our own view. As his followers, we talked about the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. How God um, that what we read in Scripture is not merely the words of men. It's it's the words of God given through. Uh, the work of men to such a degree that we can say that what Scripture says, God says. And then last week, we began working out a couple of the corollaries to that doctrine, um, meaning some truths that flow out of that. And I said last week that for the next two weeks, last week and tonight, we were going to do that. And, um, and, and these are two doctrines that surround what we might call the trustworthiness or the truthfulness of Scripture. And those two doctrines were... Last week we talked about the doctrine of inerrancy, the inerrancy of Scripture. And then tonight is the second of those, it's the infallibility of Scripture. Infallibility. Um, if you don't know how to spell that, Google it. Infallibility of Scripture. And I said last week that in many ways those two doctrines, inerrancy and infallibility, um, they, they overlap in meaning a lot. In fact, I could have... If I had to do it over again, I might have lumped inerrancy and infallibility all in the same week, right? Because they do overlap in a lot of ways, but they're not identical. They are, there is a distinction between the two, and it's, and it's this, and it's, it's in the very names. Inerrancy simply means just what it says, there are no errors. I mean, there, just are, there are none. There may be things that you think might be an error, but but they're, they're resolvable, so there are no errors. Scripture does not err. It does not err. It's inerrant. That's what inerrancy is. Infallibility is a bit stronger. Uh, infallibility te teaches, it doesn't just teach that Scripture does not err. It goes a step further and says it cannot. It cannot err. It, 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 it cannot speak falsely. It cannot lead you astray. That's infallibility. Um, both of those are outworkings of the idea of the truthfulness of Scripture, the trustworthiness of it. I mean, we talked about inerrancy last week, and tonight's infallibility. There's, 
there's a, because there's a lot of overlap between these two, a lot of what I could have said tonight about infallibility, I already said last week. So what I want to do tonight is, is just highlight what is the slight, that slight distinctiveness about, about infallibility and then conclude with some admonitions that we could take away from it practically. Uh, before we read a, a passage to begin, it's worth noting um, that if you read any of the debates theologically over the past hundred years or so, there have been some who would like to pit the doctrine of infallibility against the doctrine of inerrancy. And it's because some would believe that they saw errors in the Scripture. I, I think that those, if, if you understood inerrancy as it's properly formulated, we looked at it last week, a lot of things that they think are errors, we wouldn't count as, as errors. They're just a uh, metaphor or they're, anyway. Um, but they would, they would say, I don't know if I can affirm inerrancy, but I want to affirm infallibility. They want to not affirm inerrancy, but still feel like they have some sort of high view of the Bible. So they say, I, I hold to uh, infallibility. But what they do then is they just define infallibility as God's ability to accomplish his purpose with Scripture, even though it has a bunch of errors in it. That's kind of what they mean by infallibility. Um, and they would say it's just like he, do, he accomplishes his purpose in us, even though we have a bunch of errors in us, right? And they think that's still a way to give appearance of, of a high view of the Bible um, while also thinking it has a bunch of errors in it. But we saw last week um, that's a misunderstanding of what inerrancy is. But the problem problem with that view of, of, iner- of infallibility is that it totally misconstrues the very meaning of infallibility. Or put another way, it's sort of a sleight of hand. It, it shifts the focus away from Scripture as infallible, and it just puts it onto God. So we'll think He's infallible. But when we talk about inspiration, as I already mentioned, um, that we, we believe that a properly uh, biblical view of inspiration leads you to this point where you can say that... that um, what Scripture says, God says. You can, you can read the Bible, and, and a lot of times when, when it is God who is the one speaking, Scripture will say, Scripture says, but it's God who's speaking. So what Scripture says, God says. And therefore, what I'm getting at is this. Scripture is infallible. Uh, it's, excuse me. Scripture is inerrant because it's infallible. That's, that's, what I, that's the relation. The reason that it does not err, the reason that it is inerrant, is because it is incapable of it in the first place. That's, that's, what, that's the, this, that's the uh, connection between these two doctrines. Um, if you believe in the Scripture's infallibility, then you will also believe in its inerrancy, right? Because it cannot, it does not. That's, that's, the, that's the connection. Yeah, God could, God could use a fallible book filled with errors and still work a sovereign purpose and plan He has for it. Nobody doubts that. That's just not what the doctrine of infallibility teaches. Sure, Scripture is infallible because God himself is infallible. Titus 1-2 says, God who cannot lie or who never lies. But the end product is not just that God is infallible. The end product of his word in Scripture is also infallible. All right? So here's what I want to do. I'm going to tell you what I want, to, what I want us to see, and then we'll read the Scripture and dive in. If you're taking notes, here's what I want us to see. I want to think about some scriptural support scriptural support for the doctrine of infallibility. That's point number one. That's just going to give us an idea of the basic gist of the doctrine as distinct from inerrancy, scriptural support. Second, we're going to consider some 
counterfeits. If you don't know how to spell that, Google it. Um, counterfeits that come into play when we forsake or neglect Scripture as our infallible truth. Counterfeits. And then third, we'll finish with some applications. Applications really that should flow out of inerrancy and infallibility. So hopefully since the bulk of what we said last week, um, we said last week, we'll be able to cover what we need to say here in pretty short order, but hopefully in a helpful way. So I've asked you to turn to 2 Timothy 3. It's a passage we've already come to a number of times. That ought to tell you how important this passage is um, about what we believe about the Bible. We're going to back up and actually start reading tonight in verse 12 and read through the end of the chapter, which is in verse 17. So if you found that place in your Bible, follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 12. 2 Timothy 3.12. Paul writes, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And I ask, Lord, that you would give us minds to understand this truth about your word, that it's infallible, minds to understand it clearly. Would you give us hearts to embrace this truth about your love, about your, about your scripture, so that you might give us wills to then respond as we should to it, to live out accordingly and live as if we do believe this word is infallible. Then, Lord, would you please give me the help that I need to teach and teach clearly? Would you give us all ears to hear what your Spirit is saying in the Word? I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, I hope as we work through these points that I already mentioned, you'll understand why I chose this passage to begin. So first, let's start with scriptural support. Um, like I said, a lot of the scriptures we looked at last week when we looked at inerrancy, because the doctrines are so close, a lot of the scriptural support you could, sh- you could show for infallibility also support inerrancy. But here in this 2 Timothy 3 passage, we do see evidence of that shade of difference between the two doctrines. And what I'm talking about begins in verse 15, where Paul describes Scripture as the sacred writings. And when he says, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's, that's, he's referring to Scripture. But what does he say about those sacred writings? They are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The core definition of infallibility is it it is not able to fail it's not able to err that that and that's putting it that's putting a definition negatively what it's not able to do uh what it is unable to do it's unable to fail it's unable to err it's unable to lead you astray it's unable to lead you in the wrong direction and that makes sense because the word we use to define it is in the negative it's infallible, right? Um, 
And as true as, as that is to consider what Scripture is unable to do, and we'll consider some of that in just a minute, it's awful, also helpful then to, to turn it on its head and, and say, how could we state that positively, right? If it's unable to fail, if it's unable to err, then it will always succeed. It will always tell the truth. Um, if it's unable to lead you astray, that means it will always lead you in the way that you should go. That's just stated positively what the negative would, would imply otherwise. Then Paul says there that Scripture is, is able to make you wise for salvation. And, and he'll put, if you look in verse 16, he'll put it there, it's able to, to teach you. It's able to train you in righteousness. But if you see in that list in verse 16, you'll also, it's, it's, it's infallible in both ways. Positively, it teaches you. Positively, it trains you in righteousness. Those are the ways that you should go. But it also points out, points out when you're going a way that you shouldn't go. That's why it says Scripture is also there to reprove you for reproof. What, is, what does it mean to, what is another word for reprove? It means to reprimand you, to get on to you. Um, and it says it's, it's there for correction, to turn you away from the way that you shouldn't go and put you in the right direction. And so in that, you see both aspects of infallibility in Scripture. That it, negatively, it takes you from the way you shouldn't. Positively, it, it sets you on the way that you should go. And, and you see both of those aspects, not just here, but in other places of Scripture. Uh, one of the passages we looked at last week uh, pretty good was Psalm 19. Psalm 19, the second half of, uh, of that psalm, extols the, the praises of Scripture, and it says things, what does it say about Scripture in Psalm 19? It says it's, it's able to make wise the simple. It's, 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 it enlightens the eyes. It revives the heart. It, it, the rules of it are true. And, and, it, and it, uh, by the Scriptures, your servant is warned. That's, that's the kind of language. And similarly, think about Psalm 119.11. I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? so that I might not sin against you, right? That is, that's the testimony over and over again about Scripture. It's not just that they are true, that's inerrant, but because of that, they will always point you in the right direction. That's infallible. It will always point you in the right direction in life, and it will always point out and pull you out of going in the wrong direction. Um, now, here's the deal. The evidence that we saw last week about inerrancy um, combined with the testimony of scriptures like these, I think I just think it's more than enough. And if you missed last week, uh, if it's not on the podcast yet, it will be soon. Go back and listen to that. We looked at a lot of scripture last week. If you put all that together along with passages like these, there's more than enough in Scripture to paint a clear doctrine of the doctrine of inerrancy and infallibility. In other words, there, there are no errors in anything Scripture affirms. And because of that, it will always tell you the truth, and it will always truthfully point out the lies you might be tempted to believe and the sinful ways that you are tempted to walk in often. The deal is this, though. As true as that is, we don't always want to listen to it. We don't always want to read it. Um, we don't always care what it says. Our hearts, 
Our minds are affected by sin. We don't always love the things we should love. We don't always hate the things that we should hate. That's, that's the need for an infallible word. That's why we need one. But the infallible word alone is not enough, if not for another truth that we learn in Hebrews 4.12, Scripture is living and active. It's living and active. And Scripture is living and active because the Holy Spirit speaks to us with and by the words of Scripture. The Holy, the Holy Spirit speaks to us with the words of Scripture because He speaks to us by the words of Scripture. So that when you take up and read the Scriptures, it's not like taking up and reading any other book. It's just not. Something supernatural happens every time you read the Bible. I'll say that again. It may not feel like it. If you get up real early and it's 5.30 and you're not, you haven't really had two sips of coffee and you're barely awake and you're reading your Bible, you, don't, you may not feel like something supernatural is happening. But I'll say it again. Something supernatural happens every time you read your Bible. You need to think about that. Um, and it's not always, it may not be what you think. What do I mean by that? Um, it is every time you read it, it is either softening us to the will of God or hardening us to it. Supernatural either way. You don't ever come away from it completely unchanged. You're either softened toward obedience to it, or you're hardened in your already apathy to it. You're just confirmed in your apathy. It's living and active. And it's taking what you, whatever your posture is and pushing you further down the road. And, and here's where the doctrine of infallibility comes into play with that reality. Because Scripture is infallible, when your heart is softened to listen to it and respond to it, you can always be sure that it will lead you in the way that you should go. It will never fail in what it tells you is true, and is right, right? But it's also this, that because Scripture is infallible, when your heart is hardened to ignore it, or hardened in your apathy toward what it says, rather than listening and obeying, because it's infallible, you're putting yourself further under the judgment or the disciplining hand of God. Because, precisely because the thing toward which you are apathetic is the infallible Word of God that's telling you, you should go this way. And it's telling you that in an unerring and unfailing way. Inasmuch as Paul says that it is able to make you wise for salvation, it is also able to render you inexcusable in judgment. Or if you're a believer under the disciplining hand of God. The doctrines of inerrancy and infallibility aren't just scholarly doctrines up here. Um, 
they really do have a bearing right now on your life. It has every relevancy to it right now. And the truth of that, the fact of its relevancy, is also seen in the fact that there are counterfeits to this doctrine. Striving for influence in your life. Think about that with me for just a second. Now, the first, the first example I'm going to mention, you're going to be like, what does that have to do with me? The most obvious counterfeit in the world to this doctrine of infallibility of Scripture is the Roman Catholic doctrine of, the, of papal infallibility. Papal infallibility. Um, what is that? It's the Roman Catholic doctrine that when the Pope, sort of not just when he's like, I don't know, shuffling around, when he is like in his chair and he is making an official Pope pronouncement, edict, uh, pronouncement, in that when he is speaking from his office, they say, it's infallible, what he says. It's pretty wild, um, if you believe it. Uh, what's even wilder, though, if you think about it, how old do you think this doctrine is? Papal infallibility. How old? You'd think Roman Catholic, got to be old. 1870. 1870. It was, that was not an official doctrine until 1870. Like, how is that? I mean, Catholics are sometimes real defensive about this, and they'll say, well, it was, it was official in 1870, but they were still, they were kind of already believing this around the time of the Reformation. Okay, 1500. Um, that, as if that does them any good, because two things about that. It should be seen as curious if anything wasn't a doctrine until 1500 years after Christ. Let's just put that out there. But even in the Reformation time, the stupidity of that doctrine was clearly seen. Martin Luther said at his trial, he said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear reason, and he adds this, for I do not trust in either the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and have contradicted themselves. <laughs> so much for infallibility. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. But I would ask, the reason I even bring this up, because you're, like, you're not a bunch of Roman Catholics. What is, there, there is no direct relevancy of that to your life right now, because you're not a Roman Catholic. You're sitting in a Baptist church right now. The, relevant, the relevancy comes to you in an indirect way. Because the question I would ask is, why did the Roman Catholic Church ever feel compelled to create a doctrine like papal infallibility? Why did they do that in the first place in 1870? Because they realized the need for something sure and trustworthy um, because, because for a very long time, they, they already didn't hold Scripture as their sole authority. They already didn't believe in scriptural infallibility. They had already thrown that away. When you throw that away, what do you stand on? And so they, we got to have something infallible. Oh, the Pope's infallible. They created a, a they, they want to say we respect the Bible, but they created a parallel track called tradition with a capital T. It's the church fathers and the popes and what they say, and it's all infallible. 
But Luther pointed out church fathers and popes are wrong all the time, just like you and me are wrong all the time. And they contradict themselves all the time. So if you're not going to measure all those things about, against what an infallible Scripture says, then you have to try to hang your hat on something and pretend it's infallible. Um, and that error made Roman Catholics come up with papal infallibility for the reason that they made it. And that's a temptation that we're still tempted in. When we, when we neglect the Scriptures, when we never read it, when we never take heed to what it says, when we hear it, we will always naturally gravitate, maybe even implicitly, maybe even imperceptibly, but we will gravitate towards something else to put our trust in as if that thing is infallible. To show me the way I ought to go. To, 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 to tell me what I ought to believe. Um, what should I love? That is the entire purpose of the whole enterprise of advertising. It just is. That's the product of social media. We're restored. We're surrounded by influences everywhere we go trying to convince us of a way to go, of something to love, something to hate, something to buy. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart goes. If you're still open to 2 Timothy 3, this is what Paul was talking about in verse 13 when he said, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. In every generation, the world around us will try to deceive us, not always consciously because he says they themselves are deceived, but to walk in a way that is contrary to what it says. And in that sense, everything, everything, if not understood according to the teaching of an infallible scripture, is a counterfeit leading you to go away from the way we should go in all sorts of ways. We're always listening to something. It's just, what is it? Inerrancy teaches you that if you listen, if you listen to Scripture, you'll find that it's always true in all that it affirms. Infallibility teaches us you should listen to it. You should. So let me finish with just a couple of admonitions before we close. The obvious, obvious one is this. Um, what is the obvious application to the truth that says Scripture will never fail and will always succeed in telling you the way she go? What's the obvious application of that truth? Read your Bible. I mean, read your Bible. Um, remember, Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Some say treasured your word. How do you store up God's word in your heart? How would you go about doing that? Well, you can't do it at all if you don't at least read it, right? Um, and certainly when you read it and you meditate on it. I, I remember being in seminary, and one of my favorite professors was Dr. Bruce Ware. And I can remember he would, he would lecture all day. We would have, like, these all-day classes, man. And he would lecture all day talking about doctrine after doctrine after doctrine, giving uh, Scripture after Scripture after Scripture, supporting every doctrine. 
and would hardly ever open his Bible just off the dome. Just, I mean, boom, 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 boom. Now, I remember asking him one day, like, Dr. Ware, like, like, when did you, when did you memorize all this scripture? And he said, I never actually sat down and tried to do it. I was just in it so much that it just became so familiar, you know? And so I'm saying, like, marinate in the Word. Just make it a daily habit. Um, and even beyond that, if you do want to actively commit Scripture to memory, that's never going to be a waste of time. That's always going to be an excellent use of your time. And it will accomplish its infallible purpose in your life. It will always help you make a good decision when you've got Scripture rolling around in your head. It just help you make a right decision. If, you're, if your thought life, and you've heard me say this before, but if your thought life is going, if you're thinking about a thing you shouldn't think about, you can't ever just say, stop thinking about that, because you're still thinking about that when you're saying, stop thinking about that, or I don't want to think about that. You're still thinking about that. So what do you do? What recourse do you have if you want to stop thinking about that, whether it's being anxious about something or it's a lustful thought or something like that, how do you, how do you stop thinking about that? It's helpful if you have Scripture memorized. You have this whole other neighborhood of your brain that you can just start quoting the Scripture that you have committed to memory, and it takes your mind off the thing that you were thinking about, and you're thinking about something that is actually living and active and infallible to accomplish its sanctifying work in you. But again, if you're looking at 2 Timothy 3 again, I think we find another application related. And it's not just read your Bible. It's read it in community. Read your Bible in community. Paul tells Timothy in verse 14 and the, the first part of verse 15, he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. But then notice these, these next two phrases. Knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Okay, from whom did he learn it? Well, if you turn back to chapter 1, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, you find out part of that story. Look at, uh, look at verse 5, 2 Timothy 1, 5. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, of faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. How did Timothy from childhood know the sacred writings? Because mom and grandma taught it to him and read it to him. And then even says in verse 6, Paul says, For this reason I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So he learned it from Paul as well. In other words, for Timothy, it was never just Timothy and his Bible and the Lord in his quiet time. That's not what it was. It was always learning the truth of Scriptures together 
with other people. And that's the value of brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the value of your missional community group. That's the value of the church. The church is not only where you'll hear the truth, it's where you're going to be held accountability, accountable to, bear, to, to hear it and not just to hear it, but to conform your life to it, to walk in the way it says you should go.